Welcome back into the Tailgate Discussions podcast. My name is Dakota Haynes. We got Alex Twist, and we actually have a guest, Spencer McLaughlin. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be on with you guys. Spencer is from the Locked On Podcast Network. Uh, you host the Ducks um, podcast as well as help out with the college football one, right? Yeah, yeah. I host Locked On College Football, formerly Locked On Pac-12. We made a transition once the conference, RIP, uh, dissolves for all intents and purposes. And so now we're, uh, we've are we got a show dedicated to covering the biggest biggest stories and the greatest sport on planet Earth. And it's it's a fun, fun time. Definitely is. And yesterday we actually had some big news uh, come out in the college football world. Uh, Nick Saban, I mean, surprisingly retired in January. Um, and he actually just announced, or ESPN announced, that he's going to be joining them for college game day. Um the NFL draft and pretty much, you know, anything college football related. What are our thoughts on that? I love it. I mean, I, I think that Saban is a thoughtful guy. He's good on camera. He's been around the sport for a while. He's coached it through many different eras, you know, the BCS to the playoff to the expanded playoff. You know, I guess he never technically got there, but the portal NIL world, I, I just think the, the stories that he's got and the insight he has and the way that I've seen him talk about the sport, I want voices like that amplified, not minimized and, and to fade off into the distance. So I think that for, for college game day to bring him in, what a huge win for ESPN. I mean, you think Fox picked up the phone and called him? Of course they did. They've got one of his former players on set and Mark Ingram for their show that has been kind of rising in popularity, big new kickoff. I think game day has had some slip ups over the years. And this is a really, really big move, I think, for ESPN to solidify college game day as the premier college football pregame show. It's how I wake up every Saturday morning since, you know, I, I was really young. And I think it's how a lot of people are going to continue to do that. And I think you put a guy like Nick Saban out there and it just amplifies the fact that this is the spot where you want to go for all your, all your college football knowledge to get you ready for, for busy Saturdays in the fall. Yeah, I'm a huge fan Alex, of it. Go I ahead. think um Yeah, I love it. I um I think the addition of both Pat McAfee, we saw a few years ago, and then Saban now adds just another element to the broadcast and um I'm really excited to see his insight in the draft. I think he has a lot that he can give and I guess ESPN's just gonna be bouncing him around every program, which is great. And um if I'm not mistaken, is Saban still going to be having some sort of like executive role with the Alabama at the same time, or is he sticking like? Yeah, I think so. I think that I, I think that's the plan. Okay. Yeah, I think it's going to be great for college football, for um, you know, the NFL, for pretty much football in general. I should say. Um, I mean, he's appeared multiple times as a guest on College Game Day. But having him there as a full-time presence, it's going to be iconic. It's going to be, um, like you said, Spencer, it's going to make College Game Day the premier uh, go-to show um, for college football. And I think it has been for, for a while. It just, in the last couple of years, I think there have been a couple of missteps personally. I think bringing in McAfee, he brings in a very large audience because mm – -hmm he's got a big audience and a huge following and he's bigger than just his show. Like he's a brand all his own. So I understood that move. I personally didn't care for letting go of David Pollock. I really liked Pollock. I thought he was super sharp 
and, and talked about the game in a way for the same reasons that I like Nick Saban and, and him coming to the set. But I think that you bring in McAfee and Saban, and that's th- those are just big names. That's just instant name brand recognition to go with Kirk Herbstreet, Desmond Howard, and Lee Corso, who have been there for a long time. Reese Davis, of course, as well, when he took over for Fowler many years ago. Those are just big brands, big institutional names in the broadcasting world. And yeah, Big Noon has, you know, developed a solid product. And they're, you know, they've got some good guys as well. They've got Urban Meyer and they've got uh, Mark Ingram and Brady Quinn, but it's not Nick Saban. Like no matter no matter who it is, you know, Urban Meyer is a big name and he's done a lot of good things. I see Alex has got the, the Gator logo up on his wall behind him. So, you know, obviously he understands that how big Urban Meyer is. And I would be surprised if he never coaches college football again, but that's just me. I, I just think that getting Saban there is emphasizing once again, what we already knew, which is college game days, the premier tailgate show for college football Saturdays. And I, I think that Saban is just a great guy to have around the sport. And I, I think it's somebody who, you know, we, we want, we should want to hear more from. He, he's someone who I think cares about the sport, thinks about it. And I like having his voice amplified. Yeah. And um, despite his arrival, I think we're going to see Lee Corso stick around on the show for another year, but that's also makes me wonder, you know, how long are we going to be seeing uh, Corso on the show? And it's a good thing that they added extra guests because I think it kind of was fading with him a little bit. Um, and they needed McAfee to come on to add some youth and some energy to the show. So this is a really good direction I think they're taking. But well, I'm- Saban's not exactly youthful. He's like 70, but he's able to, he's able to talk a lot better than Corso can. I, I, I hope they, they take this move and they make Lee Corso headgear only. Now, I have wanted that for the last couple of years, and it hasn't happened because, like, I love Lee Corso. The headgear is a marker for college football can start now. Like everybody has that. It is absolutely iconic. I love it. I wait for it every single week. I don't care who the game is. I want to know who he picks because it's just a fun moment. It's an awesome moment. It's something that really differentiates college football from the NFL. That said, it should be the only thing he does because it's the only thing he can do. And even that's rough sometimes. Like it just, it happens to everybody. You know, he's had some health issues and he's just getting old. It happens. Nobody lasts forever. Father time is undefeated. And, you know, it can be hard. I think it's hard for people who like him, like I do, to watch him sometimes. Yeah. Because because we, we, we know what he used to be. And he's not that anymore. And he can't be, right? We're all going to get there at some point. You know, I work in this field. I'm not going to be able to do this forever. At some point, it's going to be hard to put a sentence together. And when that does, I hope somebody has the wherewithal to come come to me and say, it's time to hang it up. And for Coach Corso, that time has arrived and he needs to just be in the headgear only role. That should never go away. Unless he physically cannot walk, that should never go away. But it's uncomfortable for people to watch him and listen when when he's just when when it when it's just a struggle for him. And so I hope that Saban continues to minimize his role in that sense and what is asked of him. And just, you know, narrows what he does for the show, which is the headgear guy. And that's it. And nobody else should ever do the headgear because, you know, because it's his thing. That is absolutely his thing. It's an institution in college football. But I think I speak for a lot of fans by saying it is hard to watch him 
try to get sentences out. It's just uncomfortable. And it's not an uncomfortable like, oh my gosh, screw this guy, get him off there. No, it's uncomfortable. Like everyone feels bad for him. You feel bad for him because it's hard and it's challenging and it's something we're all going to go through eventually, but it's not a good viewing experience and they've reduced his role, but I think it should be reduced further. I hope Saban does that. I can agree with you. I think we, we all know that the passion for him is there, but yeah, it's just become, become uncomfortable for fans to watch. Um, but other big news that came out this week was the the Big Ten SEC alliance being formed. Um, how does this change the landscape of college football even more than what we thought, you know, the Ducks and the Huskies and USC, UCLA going to the Big Ten? I mean, pretty much everybody transferring conferences uh, would have. I, I don't think we know yet. I really don't yeah. think because all they've done is put together – an idea of an exploratory committee to discuss these issues. But I hope everybody understands the magnitude of what they're trying to take on because it is a humongous undertaking. I mean, it's there, there's so many different aspects to this and you look at the legal issues, the NCAA is battling in court and they're going to lose just about all of them. I think they're going to lose in Tennessee. They lost to Dartmouth. USC is going to lose and they're kind of on that NCAA side of, student athletes and amateurism and whatnot, that's all crumbling right now. So you have to figure out how both optically, logistically, and legally, you are going to proceed with these student athletes instead becoming employees. And you have to figure out eligibility because if they were just employees, well, you've got professors at the school that are 50 years old. Could someone play college sports till they're 40? Now, we all agree that that's not in the best interest of the sport, but could you run into a legal hurdle in which they're saying, mm, no, that's an antitrust uh, violation that you are putting an age restriction on, you know, someone working for your institution? I, I don't, again, I do not know. I don't know how all that gets worked out, but it has to be worked out in some capacity. You have to figure out how to pay players. Title IX is going to be worked into this somehow, some way. Are they going to be able to just ignore it completely because they're dealing with employee? But Title IX isn't specific only to sports, but that factor is going to come into play. They have to deal with the NIL collectives because those are just getting to a point where nobody is happy. They Ideally, they would fix the college football calendar so that National Signing Day, which was yesterday, actually mattered. Like yesterday was National Signing Day, no buzz. There's no buzz. It's twenty. It's it's twenty twenty five. Like Dan Landing talked about this with, with with Joey Mack and Jerry Allen on the Oregon Sports Network, saying, you know, we're. I I, I think there was a quote or mention to it, but um, they're 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 focused mostly on twenty twenty five. Like they're taking visits for kids and they're looking because they already did the twenty twenty four class. And it's like, how does that make any sense? How do you, how does that make any sense? You, you pack the transfer portal window and national signing day into a one month period in which your season is still ongoing. That doesn't make any sense. That helps nobody. There's nobody that benefits from that. I don't know what dope came up with that scheme, but that's where we're at right now in the sport. And I, I just would love to know the thinking. And whenever I hear the pushback of this ridiculous notion, well, it, it needs to coincide with the, with the academic calendar. Oh, bull freaking crap. Because here is everyone having their coach leave, like Washington, Alabama, Michigan, 
and there's a 30-day transfer window open. And what do you know? Guys are transferring to schools in the early part of February or the end of January when the semester's already started. So I don't buy that excuse whatsoever. And I think that it could actually come to fruition if you have them treated as employees who are also going to school. Maybe that'd make it simpler. I don't know. But those hurdles can clearly be overcome. Someone just has to have the will to act on it. Spencer, going back to the uh, scheduling, what are your thoughts on the early signing period? Do you think they should do away with it? Or oh, it should, oh, no, it shouldn't exist. Shouldn't I mean, it never should have existed. It does not do anything, even from a marketing standpoint. And we've come to understand, as a lot of people know, I'm not breaking any news here, college sports is mostly about money. Their, their, their money is at the heart of a lot of these decisions. Let's look at it from a financial standpoint. The NFL is the greatest money-making machine in America in terms of sports. It's not particularly close. They're lapping everybody. They have the most watched television broadcasts in the United States all year round. You know why? Because they masterfully design it so that there are year-round topics and there's year-round content interest and intrigue in their sport. You would never in the NFL. Roger Goodell would resign before he would allow free agency to take place during the season. You would drive coaches away, which college football is doing. You would not maximize off-season topics because once the NFL season ends, after the Super Bowl, go 49ers, by the way, I'm a Seahawks fan, but go 49ers, goodness gracious. Once the Super Bowl ends, Everybody will talk about the Super Bowl and the ramifications and such. But then what are they going to discuss? The NFL is still going to have its own shows on ESPN. It's still going to be talked about on countless podcasts and sports talk radio shows across the country. How? Because after the season, they'll transition into free agency and everybody will assess what are their needs? What do they need to do here? Who do they need to go after? Who's available and everything like that. But that happens after the season. And then that transitions into spring practice. Then you get reports, you get injuries, you get camp battles and everything like that. Then the summertime can certainly be a little bit more of a dead period. But again, that transition financially is maximizing the interest in your sport and also generating the best product for fans. Because when you're in the season, your focus should be on in the season. Now you have fans watching college football games, whether it's towards the end of the regular season or bowl season or, or whatever. And they're just thinking about, well, who's even going to come back next year? That's not that 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 is not a good thing for your fans, for the fans of your sport to be thinking about. That's not the logical progression. Like the offseason should be a time in, in which shows can discuss the moves and everything. And with both high school recruiting and the transfer portal window, there are opportunities to do that in college football, but because we have no governing body here, the NCAA technically makes the rules, but they don't actually, you know, they don't have any of their revenue in college football. So their impact is rather minimal. They just try to stay relevant by slapping sanctions on people that nobody gives a rip about. And so when you have that, the conferences are left to their own devices to just act in their own best interests. And that's how you get this jagged, inconsistent, illogical, weird calendar, different, you know, conferences have different schedules and requirements and everything like that. And that's how you get into this spot. And and frankly, I applaud the SEC and the Big Ten for putting together something to try and address this and fix it. I don't know how they do it, though, because really the only enforcement mechanism I could see 
would be the conferences collectively deciding we all need to act this way. And so we'll all enforce the rules this way, because I don't think the NCAA has got enough teeth to come to, especially as it's just, you know, amateurism's getting gutted in the courts right now and whatnot. I don't think the NCAA has got enough teeth to do that. So the conferences have to come together and agree. And hopefully they could set up a schedule that maximizes fan engagement, that gives them the best experience, makes the most sense and eases the burden on coaches who are just way too overworked. Yeah. And like you said, it could just end up being a whole nothing burger. Like nothing could end up being done. Like we saw with the Alliance, I think it was the ACC, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten teamed up and didn't really accomplish much. It didn't accomplish anything. I mean, it was, I don't even know what the point of that was. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't think anybody knows. I think this one though, between the top two conferences in the country, I think this will have more to it. I just don't think we're going to have a resolution on it for maybe a couple months, but it seems like at the rate at which things are moving in the courts, you're going to have to resolve these matters by the start of next season. Which could create a lot of, uh, problems that they need to fix. I mean, you, you, you said it best, but um, yeah, I it just intrigues me that, you know, they're creating this. Um, I mean, there's definitely a need for it as well. But uh, speaking of the Ducks, let me pull up my notes here. Uh, they've had a busy off season this, uh, this year um, with guys coming back, the transfer portal, having one of the biggest recruiting classes actually I should say the biggest recruiting class in Oregon history. Um, how does this help prepare them for the big 10? Uh, I mean, they're ready. They, 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 along with Ohio state should be viewed as the conference contenders for, for next year, because they are just loaded at a number of spots and they in Ohio state have something in common. And that's that a lot of people that had the opportunity, a lot of players to go to the NFL decided instead to come back because they wanted to give this thing another shot. And we saw Washington do that in 2023. They had guys like Penix and the receivers and everybody come back when they could have gone on. Instead, they went all the way to the national championship game. I'm not guaranteeing that Oregon and Ohio State will play for the national championship, but it's hard to not look at what Oregon's done this offseason, what they have coming back, the coaching staff continuity that both of these staffs have, and Oregon's got even more you know, with uh, with their OC and DC and co-defensive coordinator back who plays a big role, Chris Hampton, their DBs coach. It's hard to not look at Oregon and think they're one of the two teams to beat in the Big Ten, along with Ohio State. You know, Washington and Michigan played in the national championship last year. They're both going to pull back. I don't think they'll pull back and, you know, go five and, you know, five and seven or four and eight or anything like that. But it feels like their ceiling is probably around eight and four. I mean, Will Rogers is a respectable quarterback. Jed Fish is a good coach. They hired Steve Belichick as their DC. They've brought in some other players. They'll be respectable, but to think that they'll be what they were last year, no way. Like they, they haven't brought in enough. They've lost 20 of 22 starters from the team that went to the national championship last year. So they'll be a pullback team, uh, though still solid. Michigan as well. They lose their, their running back. They lose their quarterback. They lose their receivers, a couple offensive linemen, some defensive players, and then their head coach and their defense coordinator. They'll be a pullback team. And so then you look at, you know, Penn State, and I could see Penn State being the number three team in the Big Ten. I'll believe it when I see it, and I will not pick them to, you know, be a Big Ten contender in, in the way that 
I see Ohio State and Oregon is capable of doing because Penn State is a really good program. They've got a really good head coach in James Franklin. They recruit very well. They've got a returning quarterback who needs to improve. But I watch them go toe-to-toe with big boy programs every year, and James Franklin is 4-16, and I think is the number, against Michigan and Ohio State. Oregon's in that sort of class, so I'm not going to – even though I like Penn State, I'd probably pick them to go 10-2 and next year. I haven't looked at their schedule recently, but they'll probably be, in, be a 10-win team again. But they, they, they rarely get over the hump against Ohio State. I don't think this is the year that they're going to do that. So I, I, I think Oregon is – in a really good spot. I mean, they lost some really, really important players to be sure, but they've done a great job in the transfer portal. You lose Troy Franklin, bring in Evan Stewart, five-star wide out from Texas A&M. They bring back their next three receivers. Tez Johnson, thousand yard guy, set the Oregon receptions record. And then you've got Treshawn Holden, Gary Bryant Jr. You got some promising freshmen. Then you bring in Dylan Gabriel, who's a veteran that completed almost 70% of his passes last year. So he's going to have plenty of weapons. He's going to return basically one, two, three, four starters along the offensive line. They do lose their Remington Award winner, given to the best center in college football in Jackson Powers Johnson, but they've got a guy ready to step in who played a boatload as a true freshman unexpectedly, but he was just that good that he cracked the rotation consistently. So I love what Oregon's done on both sides of the ball. I like the returners on defense. I like a lot of the newcomers on defense, and I think offensively, they're going to give Dylan Gabriel a, a really, really good setup to be the same player he was last year at Oklahoma, which was a good quarterback. Yeah, I'm uh, frankly, I'm jealous as a Florida fan of Oregon's efforts on the recruiting trail. You guys are just killing it. And um, I totally agree. I think it's it's going to be Ohio State and Oregon. I'd be completely shocked if we – I think both of them are going to reach the playoff. Um, but I think Penn State is on the outside looking in once again. Michigan – you said, you know, you could see eight and four. I think we could see below eight wins for Michigan with Jim Harbaugh. Mm-hmm. Sanctions on looming. Um, things might not be looking very good for them. But um, the only team that, you know, comes close to Ohio State in terms of recruiting is Oregon. You know, they rival them head to head. And I think um, they're going to be the new powerhouse in the Big Ten for years to come. Yeah, I think those are your top two recruiting teams. I think USC is capable of being up there. Lincoln Riley is recruited okay. I won't say great, but it's certainly not bad. It's just USC's got the 17th best class in 2024. Yeah. You're USC. You should be in the top 10 every year. You're yeah, you're, you're, you're in Los Angeles. Like St. John Bosco is not that far from you. Modern day is down the road from USC. Those are, those guys are churning out four and five star recruits, like, like a, like a candy factory out there. And the fact that USC doesn't recruit better, I, I, I like what USC did this offseason, though. I think, frankly, if you had to give me a number three team in the Big Ten, I'd be between USC and and Penn State. I like Drew Aller. But frankly, and this is going to be a hot take, and Oregon fans might not like hearing me say this, I trust Lincoln Riley more than most people do, right? He just had his worst season ever as a head coach. And yeah, he's going to a, de- a conference where – they play a lot of defense. Well, you know who he hired as a defensive coordinator? DeAnton Lynn from UCLA, who was one of the finalists for the Broyles Award this year, given to the nation's top assistant. And he coordinated the best defense in the Pac-12 this past year, even better than Oregon's with Dan Lanning, Tosh Lupoy, and Chris Hampton, who came in, had an impact. UCLA statistically had the best defense. And, and that is a testament to how good Lynn was as a defensive coordinator. And he was doing it at UCLA, where their commitment to football 
not very large. The fact that they let him walk to their crosstown rival is in, is all you need to know. And Chip Kelly wants out of there. Like it's not a great, not, not a great situation to be in there. So I think for, I think for USC with Miller Moss at quarterback, Lincoln Riley's always going to be able to score points. The question is, well, can you get stops? Well, now you got a guy who can get stops and they brought in some good players and they got a couple nice returners like Bear Alexander on that defense as well. They need better scheme and better coaching. And that I think is what DeAnton Lynn can bring to the table. So, you know, as I look at the top teams in the big 10 next year, I think two of them are from the former Pac-12. Who would you say are um, a couple of your favorite arrivals outside of Evan Stewart and Dylan Gabriel, uh, your new arrivals for the Ducks? Could be transfers or recruits. That's a fantastic question. I, I think Jabbar Muhammad, the Washington transfer, has got to be near the top of the list. You lose a first-team All-Pac-12 selection in Kyrie Jackson. Who do you replace him with? Second-team All-Pac-12 selection, Jabbar Muhammad, who I think played better as the season went on and played some of his best football down the stretch. I mean, just a lethal cover guy who, who, by the way, think about this in practice, who was he going up against? Roman Dunze, Jalen McMillan, Jalen Polk, all three NFL wideouts. Like that guy is leave him on an Island and, and Oregon is need, needs a corner like that. I think they had one last year in, in Jackson, but I think the secondary has brought in some really, really good depth. And I think that's a great thing because they were, they, the secondary was very good last year, but they lost a lot of players. They lost some uh, rotation guys. They lost uh, a couple starters, right? Kyrie Jackson, Evan Williams, all conference guys, they're gone. Steve Stevens, longtime veteran starter, he's gone. So they bring in Kobe Savage. They bring in uh, Cam Alexander as well, the corner from UTSA, Brandon Johnson from Duke. But I think Muhammad is one guy that really excites Oregon fans, not just because he comes from Washington. Like that's, you know, a fun jab to make at, at Husky fans on Twitter and everything like that. But I, I think that, you know, on the field, he's a real deal and, and can be an all-conference sort of guy. I think another player, you know, you have to talk about Dylan Gabriel, right, a quarterback, because he's going to replace Bo Nix. And his job is not just to be Oregon starter and get them to the Big Ten Championship in the playoff next year, but he's also got to be a mentor. And, and, you know, he did that a little bit with Jackson Arnold at Oklahoma. Looks like he might have prepared him pretty well. But Dante Moore's quarterback one in 2025. And you want him learning under a good, productive veteran quarterback in Dylan Gabriel. So, you know, I, I think that is I think that is a really, really nice situation for Oregon to have in their quarterback room. And I think those two guys are probably the most impactful transfer transfers you'll see on each side of the ball. Another one that I would not underestimate, Jamari Caldwell, second team all big 12 defensive tackle transferred in from Houston. Oregon lost their top four, not one, not two, not three, but four defensive tackles from last year's team. They lost Casey Rogers. They lost Popo Amavai. They lost Brandon Dorless, and they lost Taki Taimani. Those were your top four DTs. And now, you know, you might be relying guys like Keon Ware Hudson and Ben Roberts, who have been rotation players, but they needed a real kind of anchor in the middle and Caldwell brings that. So I like that combined with the recruiting talent they have from the 2023 class and 2024 with guys like Aiden Breland coming out of modern day who, you know, could make an impact in his first year. I, I think that, that Caldwell someone who, you know, adds an important solidifying aspect to Oregon's defensive front. And that's something they, they, they definitely needed. Yeah. I would also say uh, Jericho Johnson is a, a guy that I would um, like to see a lot from. 
Um, I mean, he definitely brings a, a hype around him. But I, I, you touched on it a little bit. I think that Oregon fans should be excited for Dante Moore. And I know, I know that they are. Um, heading into 2025, I know that there's a little bit more hype uh, and um, excitement around him. But I also feel like, and Dan, Dan Lanning said it best this last week, you know, he struggled when he was at UCLA. And most of that might be because his heart was at Oregon that entire time. Like, you know, that's where he committed to. He first. just was, I, I don't, I don't think it's that. He just wasn't ready to play. I don't think he ever got along with Chip Kelly. He's not the first guy to have that particular issue, but I don't think he was ever ready to play. And, and by the way, doesn't mean he isn't tremendously talented. He is, but most quarterbacks are not ready to play as true freshmen. Even, even five-star guys. Look at Kate Klubnick over at Clemson or DJ Uyunglele before him or Quinn Ewers once upon a time at Ohio State was a big time recruit. He didn't play his, he didn't play his first year. I mean, Joe Burrow didn't play right away. Like mo- most guys, Justin Herbert, even Justin Herbert, wasn't a big time recruit. He was way under recruited, but Justin Herbert did not start his first college game and neither did Dante Moore. And they had a weird situation where they didn't really have a plan. You know, Ethan Garbers was the starter, but then Dante Moore showed enough promise. So they put him in, but then he threw too many picks, so they pulled him back out. He needed a more stable situation. That much is clear. And even for someone as talented as him, when he makes good throws, I mean, he, it, he looks like an NFL guy. But he's not ready to be that yet. And Oregon is the perfect spot for him to sit behind uh, Dylan Gabriel for a year, develop, and then be a starter in 2025. I, I, I could definitely agree with that. Um, and I know you talked about it on, uh, I, I heard it on, on one of your most recent podcasts, and you actually just mentioned it a little bit ago as well. But the, the staff continuity with Oregon. Um, we've heard people say Oregon is a stepping stone program for coaches this, this offseason, especially with the rumors that Dan Lanning was going to Alabama, um, which never ended up happening. But um, the staff continuity it, it kind of takes Oregon out of that, um, that realm, out of that t- discussion um, for that list, um, I would say. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I know the interest at Alabama. I, I know this to be true. I know that Alabama wanted Dan Lanning. But Dan Lanning clearly did not want Alabama. Now, was a formal offer ever made? I don't know. You know, people can talk till they're blue in the face or red in the face, whatever color it is about, you know, well, he was never off. Well, he was a con like Alabama was interested and Dan Lanning decided, nope, I want to stay at Oregon. And that is a big time testament. And I don't think it's that Oregon is viewed as a stepping stone program as to why these coaches left. I think that the geography is what ultimately did Oregon in with not being able to retain Willie Taggart and Mario Cristobal. It's, it's worked out in the long run because Cristobal has proved to be a better head coach than Willie Taggart, and Lanning has proved to be a better head coach than, than Mario Cristobal. So Oregon is in a good position. But having staff continuity, I got a question about this on the show you're referencing. 
the last time Oregon had the same offensive and defensive coordinators for two seasons in a row was the 2011-2012 seasons. In those years, Oregon won the Pac-12 and the Rose Bowl in 2011, and in 2012 with Chip Kelly and Marcus Mariota with Helfrich as the OC and Nick Aliotti as the DC, they went 12-1 and and won the Fiesta Bowl and until a late-season loss to Stanford with a questionable call about Zach Ertz being ruled inbounds would have gone undefeated and played for the BCS national championship game. So I, I think that for, I think that for the ducks, like staff continuity cannot be overstated as to how important it is because for those guys who are returning to keep everything the same, to keep all the calls the same and to keep all of the, the, the schemes and the assignments and, you know, what is being asked of you and everything to keep that and have the same voices in your ear talking to you all the time, that's big. I think that's really big, and it's a luxury that is not always afforded to high-profile programs like Oregon because, as we've seen, offensive coordinators or defensive coaches or coordinators are regularly poached for head coaching positions. That's the way that this world works. And, you know, Joe Moorhead was the the head coach or was the OC, and then – got asked to be the the head coach at, at Akron. He would have left had Mario Cristobal stayed. And so I, I think that for for the Ducks, you know, Andy Avalos went to be the head coach at Boise State. And uh Ken Wilson even was recently the head coach in Nevada. It didn't go very well for him, but he was an, he was an assistant there. Kenny Dillingham went down to be the coach at uh, ASU where he is. I, I think that he is or that that Oregon is rather a place that is going to draw a lot of attention and recognition. And so when you have an opportunity like this, you got to capitalize because yeah, Dan Lanning's made two rock star offensive coordinator hires. One of them's the youngest power five head coach in the country who I think is going to do very well at Arizona state. And the other one was, you know, a, a finalist at one point in time, I forget how many uh, candidates it was down to, but it was a finalist for the Broyles award last year And Oregon's offense was better than it was the previous season. So I I think that he's done a great job there, but you never know when, you know, if Will Stein is a head coach in a year or two, well, I have confidence Dan Lanning will make a good hire, but does everybody hit every hire on their staff out of the park all the time? No, it's one of the hard parts of being a head coach. You got to have names. You got to be able to make connections and interview good candidates. And I think that he's done a really, really good job of, of bringing in a really quality staff, but, that's naturally going to get some buzz about, hey, could this guy be a candidate to go here? That's just the price of doing business. Well, and to add to that, I, I, I think the fact that, you know, they hired from within for the cornerbacks position and the inside linebackers position, that really shows promise to the, the staff that Lanning has built there at Oregon um, and shows promise to the recruits that are coming in. Like, hey, we believe in these guys and we want to roll with them. Yeah, I, I I think you're absolutely right, and they do uh they they do a really really good job of understanding when it's an outside hire time and when it's time to to promote somebody from within. They feel like Coach Wadud is someone who you know deserved a, a promotion and expanded role, and another guy they felt that about was was Elite Terry, and, and Elite Terry last year did an awesome job as the offensive line coach after Adrian Clem left to go uh, coach the offensive line with the Patriots in the NFL. So, you know, I, I, I just think the staff has done nothing but earn the, the trust of, of Oregon fans because you look at every hire they've made and 
which which one isn't working out which position coach isn't recruiting well which position coach isn't having their guys ready to go like i mean carlos lachlan might be the best individual if there were one assistant that i'd say oregon for a position coach has got to maintain it's carlos lachlan the running backs coach because there was this great stat um when bucky irving carried the ball against utah and had it stripped as he went to the ground it was just a great play by the defensive tackle that was the first time the first time in the last two seasons and the only time in which oregon running backs fumbled the football and that ball never technically not not technically that ball didn't actually hit the turf it wasn't punched out so not only does he recruit well and not only does oregon run the ball well but that guy knows how to coach in a really big way. And so I, I think there have just been a lot of good hires who have done an excellent job. And Oregon staff is well positioned to keep recruiting well and keep you know producing results on the field. All right. Any final comments, Alex? Um, that's all for me, man. Oregon, though, is super well-oiled machine with landing. Like, it just doesn't seem like they can do any wrong when you have that structure set in place. Staff members as well are going to be able to, going to want to come there just like recruits. So when there's an opening, I think, you know, you can be pretty confident that they're going to hire someone that's ready for the job. All right, Spencer. Well, thank you for joining us uh, here on the tailgate discussions podcast today. Really enjoyed having you on. I hope to have you on uh, more in the future. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. Go ducks. All right. Well, that's going to end it for us here today. Thank you for watching once again right here on the Phantom Sports Network.